Hi everyone, welcome to Coaches on the Couch. I'm Louise. And I'm Rachel. We know that we have some regular listeners, but if you're tuning in for the first time, uh, welcome and a bit of background. Our podcast, Coaches on the Couch, was launched at the start of the pandemic to promote the sharing of information among leaders during that difficult time. Having emerged from that, the world continues to be uncertain and leaders have told us they really appreciate being able to hear insights from others in the industry who are facing similar challenges. Yeah, but the podcast is a small part of what Louise and I do. You know, our day job is leadership development and coaching, and we come together to design and deliver step-up programs, bespoke leadership development programs for existing and future leaders and managers within architects practices, engineers and others across the sectors. And you can find out more about that at stepuplondon.com. Well, the theme for today's conversation is the same theme as conversations that take place in architectural practices and other consultancies across the built environment, really quite consistently as far as we can tell, and that's succession. And we're joined by Denise Bennett's and James Nelms of Bennett's Associates, as well as Leanne Tritton and Rose Marshall of Ing Media. And we'll start this, and indeed we start all of our conversations by asking, please tell us something brief and interesting about your couch, which just brings a bit more insight into our guests. So let's go into that conversation now. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Coaches on the Couch. And before we get into anything else, we're going to talk about couches, and we've got four couches to get through this morning, and the reasons for which will become clear. So please tell us something interesting about your couch. And maybe I'll go to James first, because he's the first person I can see on my screen. Hi, Louise. I'm cheating a little. I'm on the couch in our studio, in the corner of the studio. It's a place where I've spent a lot of time over the last few years throughout the course of the pandemic when everybody else was set up to work at home. I walked across the park into the studio every day and set myself up in this corner of the world to the point that when everyone um, joyously finally came back to the studio, I felt slightly invaded. So it's still... um, You've got a bit territorial about your couch. We're always very... We're always very pleased when people take that seriously enough to be actually sitting on their couch when we record the pod. So that's very nice. Thank you. Rose of Ing Media, let's come to you next. Sure. So my couch is probably the only bit of furniture I actually own at the moment because I moved house about three days ago. So our couch is a beautiful old Chesterfield that's very beaten up, but we're very fond of it. We inherited it from a family member. So yeah, that's going to be tiding us over for the short term anyway so we'll have you on your Chesterfield in your new house Um, congratulations on home ownership thank you Uh, and Denise I'm actually not sitting on a couch but I am actually sitting on a one of my favorite chairs which is a a Hans Wegener wing chair uh, which is incredibly comfortable easy to move around just always reminds you about the the quality of simple good design and I use it either for for working reading or just looking at the fantastic view and thinking about things lovely thank you and Leanne? Um, so my couch is slightly imaginary as well. My couch is currently in storage because I'm, I'm between homes, but it's uh, green velvet and it's very luxurious. And I got it for an absolute song a couple of years ago when a friend of mine who does interiors for super prime properties rang me and said, do you want a sofa? You can have it within the day. Uh, as long as we can get a, a truck around to pick it up. And it cost me almost nothing. But every time I lie on it, I think I'm a billionaire. So I love it. God, fantastic. That, you lucked out there, didn't you? 
Uh, anyway, so let's go into the introductions. Uh, Leanne Tritton, you're the founder of Ing Media, the leading PR and communications agency for the built environment. And you currently employ about 40 people at Ing. And earlier this year, you commissioned Jonathan Morrison, the Times' architectural correspondent, to write a report about succession. It was a particularly pertinent topic for you because you and Ing has, had been engaged with executing your own succession planning for several years. And as part of this, Ing became an employee ownership trust in 2021, has now appointed Damien Wilde as managing director, uh, while you've become executive chair. So it's good we're talking chairs today. And Rose Marshall, you joined Ing in 2019 as a senior account manager. And by early 2022, you were an associate director. So you've got firsthand experience of the process of becoming an EOT. And that's one of the things we wanted to explore today and hear about from your perspective. Yeah, definitely. And we're also delighted to be joined by Denise Bennett and James Nelms from Bennett's Associates, a practice founded in 1987 by you, Denise, and Rab Bennett. The practice is currently 80 strong and has a diverse portfolio ranging from theatres to corporate headquarters and building for higher education. And Bennett's has also gone down the employee ownership trust route, becoming one in September 2016. And you're one of the practices profiled in that report. And in it, you share your experience of maturing into an EOT and what that journey involved for you. And James, you became a director of Bennett's in 2019, having joined the practice in 2004. And as well as providing design direction, you're involved in defining the agenda and culture of the practice. And it'd be good to know a little bit more about what that looks like later on in the podcast. And again, we'd like to learn more about the challenges and benefits of implementing that succession strategy at Bennett's from both points of view. So Denise, we'll come to you first. When you and Rab set up the practice in 1987, I can imagine the exit strategy was quite a long way from your thoughts. And obviously exit strategy is a big part of the reason for succession planning. When did you start thinking about it? We, with hindsight, we probably started thinking about it quite early on uh, because we actually had to think about practice structure. You know, we, we set up in 87 and we defaulted to being a partnership which is what one tended to do in those days. And then we went to hell and back with the uh, the recession of the late 80s, uh, just managed to survive. And our accountant actually said, I think you'd better incorporate because a married couple sharing a practice and all the other assets was really not a good place to be. So in uh, uh, 92, we became a limited company and LLPs didn't exist in those days. And... Well, one of the advantages of the, the incorporation was that we could appoint directors. And we, we did that over a number of years. But we also realized um, it was quite important to also begin to try to share ownership. And that's when it's not quite so straightforward. You can't give away shares in a company. There has to be a financial transaction of some description or another. So with our, our then senior management colleagues, we looked at various options and we actually adopted a, an enterprise management initiative, which let us divest, Rab and myself, of 22% of our shares by paying exceptional bonuses to directors for the net sum to remain in the practice, but for the government 
through HMRC to get all, all the tax. And we thought we'd do that a number of times until we had reduced our shareholding to 51% by the time we hit 65. But we very quickly realised it just didn't really make sense. It cost the practice money. We personally didn't make any money from it, but it still meant that the shares were owned by a small number of people. But the worth, the value of the practice has been built by everybody that's been working in the practice over all the years. And we just kept on coming around to thinking there has to be a more equitable way to, to consider ownership and ownership and succession are, you know, they are just basically the two sides of the same coin. Mm. Um, but we concentrated on, on ownership, thinking that if we got the ownership sorted, that actually was the route to having a, a succession plan. Yeah. And we were we were incredibly lucky that we had some very, very good colleagues who had been with us for quite a long time. Um, and we were very much in support of that, that approach. So it was ownership-led rather than succession-led, which is interesting. Would you say the same for you, Leanne, or is it slightly different for Eng? Because, of course, you're not featured in the report, but you are a very important part, or you commissioned it. So, Well, I think, I, first of all, I mean, uh, just in terms of uh, Rab and Denise, I mean, they had a huge impact on my thinking because... Um, when you're a consultant to such a large range of practices, it, it was always interesting to be in the rooms where people were talking about either exit or succession. And there's people are on a sliding scale of maturity of that discussion. So sometimes people leave it too late uh, or too early. But with Rab and Denise, what was amazing is to watch them manage that process very calmly. And that to me, was was a great um, uh, example that that I could take on, and I was slightly different. So, uh, as a PR agency, the the normal model of an agency is that you find an exit through a, a trade sale buyer. Now, building up an agency in the built environment is an unusual sort of uh, uh, sector to be in. And there were no natural buyers of uh, of uh, in, and also some of the people who were buyers, I didn't feel matched our value system. And through working with so many architects and engineers as well, I became more and more uh, exposed to the EOT model. And then I went and, and and met someone who was an advisor who was just fantastic and very calm and. It seemed to me just such a natural way of being able to pick the time for succession when, you know, I'm, I was 53 when we did it. I'm 55 now. So it's getting me out the door, hopefully not too early and not too late. But I think that's a really important thing for young people coming through to see that the founders don't hang around forever. You know, it's a bit like parenting. You've got to, got to let them go and stop being a backseat driver. So I'm still backseat driving a little bit, but it's been it's been a huge uh, success as far as I'm concerned. I mean, the most important point I think for, for me was in September when we paid out our first tranche of bonuses via the EOT, and when the team could actually start to see the effects of it in their in their bank. That was really important. Yeah. Makes it real. Absolutely. You said, Leanne, there, the letting go phrase, which we really want to come back to, particularly to, to you and Denise. But I just want to bring Rose and James in and just 
James, maybe to you first. When you do you remember your first thoughts when you heard that that it was moving across to a, an EOT? Yes, I mean I think I was first involved in the discussion um, probably around 2014 sort of time, so a couple of years before the transition happened. Denise set up a group within the practice that came from different stages of experience. And whilst, of course, the decisions and the choices to become an EOT were ultimately down to the then owners of the business, they were keen to engage with staff at different levels so that we understood what was happening and that we were kept up to speed and that we were able to share our views and opinions. I think for me personally, I knew about employee ownership through sort of famous big cases like John Lewis. But the, the, at that point in 2014, EOTs on the sort of scale of business that we were were a little less well-known. There were a few, but there weren't so many. Um, Denise and I attended the Employee Ownership Association conference. Mm-hmm. I think that was around 2015. And I came away from that sort of feeling that there was some in the room who thought it was going to be wonderful because they would finally get to understand what was happening within the business. And you could see that some people have very different business models. I think for us, it felt it wasn't actually going to be very different to how things already were. Right. And so there was quite a natural evolution. That's not to say there aren't some hurdles to overcome. A, a sort of shift of that scale is always going to have some challenges, but it's for the most part, it felt it was just shoring up how we already work, how we sort of treat each other. Yeah, so as I say, of the sort of available options for succession, it felt like a relatively natural evolution. What did you see as the benefits to, to you as a sort of newer director? Well, the, I suppose back to the point about letting go and so on, it, one of the sort of points is that you, as a sort of somebody who's growing into a role of leadership, you need to feel like you've got scope to grow and to take things forward. And so that point about succession is is important. One of the challenges that we discussed at the time was uh, historic models of rewarding those who are in a leadership position. And do you take away this? Do you you take away that aspiration? Um, You're not going to be getting a sort of uh, payout at the end of your career. So we've, what we've done is work towards a structure in which people are openly and fairly rewarded through the trust as they work through their careers and so on. So that was definitely one of the things that I and a few others were sort of wanted to understand before the move was 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 made, really. Um, but yeah, I mean, for, for the most part, the positives of me are really being given the chance that I can have somebody watching over my shoulder and nudging me in the right direction. And sometimes, like a family, we'll have squabbles which are a bit more vocal. And other times we'll we'll um, you know, mostly we see eye to eye and it's it is a bit more like a I, I noticed in some of your notes you talked about a um, changing of the guard. I think it's more a sort of intergenerational handover. The family analogy seems to work better mm-hmm. for us. Yeah, interesting. What about you, Rose? Yeah, I mean I think Leanne first mentioned the kind of EOT plan shortly after I joined Ing, which is maybe late 2019, early 2020. And much like you, James, it felt like a very natural transition in that actually it wasn't going to change very much operationally for us as a business or for how staff experience working at Ing. You know, there were still, there were already systems in place that Leanne had set up that were kind of part of the EOT transition, but that we would all become accustomed to already, like a management board and a senior management team. So there wasn't, you know, a kind of big shift in all of a sudden, like, right, we're going to operate like an EOT now. But in terms of how I think we all felt about it at the time, or me personally, kind of going back to Leanne's point, it was quite reassuring that we couldn't be taken over by somebody that 
the vision and values of the company were going to be kind of embodied or entrenched in in the EOT. So the, that kind of feeling of long term safety, I guess, in the business that it's not going to become something that I don't feel like I belong to anymore, that I want to be a part of was really important. And I think staff maybe take that for granted a little bit perhaps not kind of realizing because it has been so seamless that you know that's something that they might not have appreciated so much if it had have changed but yeah and I think the profit share kind of hitting everyone's bank accounts is the kind of real first moment where people really understand what the EOT can mean for them in sort of very concrete terms but it's funny now everyone's sort of standing up a little bit taller and thinking oh do we need to spend that money in that way or should we be doing this because they can kind of appreciate if there's more in the pot at the end of the year then they get more of that share which is really interesting and a good thing I think because it means that everybody's thinking a bit more strategically and being a bit more business-minded I guess. That's such a good point you know one of the things with becoming an EOT and we should point out that other models are available, but it's the one that we're talking about today, is that it does require people who have been promoted because they're good at PR or they're good at architecture and design, um, rather than because they're commercially minded or they have a good sense of how to run a business. And I just wondered how do leaders prepare their teams, their staff for being more commercially minded, more focused on the business, other than the pot of money at the end of the working year. Denise, can I I take exception with the use of the phrase commercially minded? Because I actually think what EOTs are about is common purpose. And it's much, much more than potentially the financial bottom line. And quite often, you know, we will be asking people in the the, the practice, and and this we've done for decades, this isn't a consequence of employee ownership, but was actually the way we operated, that, you know, sometimes if we thought we were you know, in those lovely days when you, you had lots of potential project offers, we would actually have a discussion amongst staff as to which projects, if we couldn't do, say, two projects, which one we thought was better for the practice. And that didn't necessarily mean the, the highest fee earning one or the one that might generate the most profit. It was actually looking at the experience it afforded the practice, how it let us grow as architects and as a practice. So I think it's that common purpose is a really important aspect as far as I'm concerned. Um, And then all being well, of course, you can get employee ownership bonuses, which are tax free up to a a certain level. But, you know, we've always had the the notion in, in the practice when things were going well, we did have bonuses. And sometimes those were quite sizable. But we also had bonuses which actually went to all staff and it wasn't just top heavy in terms of the more senior people getting the much bigger bonuses than others. So I I do think it's that notion um, that you shouldn't be going into employee ownership if you're thinking it's going to improve necessarily the financial bottom line. It actually is a very, very rounded concept in terms of not only the development of the practice, but of all the individuals within the practice. Very good point. Thank you. Denise, can I can I jump in there? And I've Denise, I've never disagreed with you ever. (laughs) But I I think for for us, we had uh, well, certainly I had more of a commercial uh, view in mind as well as the vision and values. And and I'll tell you for why. When Ing was founded in uh, 99, the, the idea of a large scale 
agency that looked after the built environment just didn't exist. And uh, so over 23 years, I mean, I've moved heaven and earth to assemble a team who I think are the best people in the business. But that's been quite hard to get those people together. And I think we've just scratched the surface in terms of what we can become. And the, the, uh, I, I always talk about us becoming, in becoming the Arabs of communications. I think we can be global. I think we can be doing all sorts of uh, channels that we haven't even started in. However, what we need to do most importantly is keep our team together and motivate them that they're going to stay together and uh, they're part of something that's good, but also are rewarded because the PR industry is slightly different to architecture. I think uh, PR people maybe want money a little bit more than architects do or certainly get paid a bit more. So I wanted a, a, a way in which we could keep the team together and give it a uh, longevity to realize its full potential and the EOT, EOT was the best way of doing that because I think if we had have gone for a trade sale, we would have been broken up into bits and, you know, some people would go and some people would be kept depending on, on if their look and feel fitted with another organisation. And I always say Ings, Ings made up of a whole range of people from different life experiences and sectors and everything else. And that's, for me, made complete sense to keep that team together and also for them to be rewarded and find a mechanism for them to be rewarded uh, as well as the vision and values. I think the interesting word that there is longevity because I think in terms of architectural practice, one of the things that we have always believed is that actually one of the, the reasons that practice can survive is not to be too specialist but to actually be the, the generalist. So we do, you know, as you said at the beginning, we actually do works for universities, for commercial clients, you know, hotels and, and everything else. And actually, in many respects, that is one of the things which informed the, the choice that people were looking at in terms of projects, was actually looking at something which would bear fruit in the long term, and by bearing fruit in the long term, actually that helps to give you the financial stability. And financial stability is one of the ways that you can actually pay people well, because you actually do have the throughput of work and you have the reliability of being able to deliver and of being able to nurture the staff. So not sure what, what you think about that, James. Yeah, and that's all true. I think um, when I was just thinking about when both of you are speaking, maybe you're being a bit modest as well Denise I mean I think as a practice you've always led led us in a way that instills the importance of good governance I guess financially we we, we practice you know always in the black we practice in a way that's maybe different to some of our peers and that is that remains at the time of becoming an EOT that was an important part of the discussion and I was kind of pleasantly surprised by many of the people raising those kind of issues were actually really quite junior staff they, they were all very keen that part of who Bennett's Associates is is being um, aware of what we're doing it might be a broad spread of projects in the way that you're saying but being aware too of our financial position we are pretty transparent these days we give our staff financial updates on the business fairly regularly and again that is part of who the practice has been for a long period I think to go back to Louise's original question perhaps Again, it wasn't a huge transition for us becoming an EOT. People within the business were already quite 
aware of how we run financially and taking on responsibility wasn't a massive leap. It was a step up, but it wasn't a sort of huge leap forward because Denise and Rabbit instilled that in us for some time in, in, in a positive way, I mean. But always, at the, you know, we're architects. Ultimately, all of us, big part of what we do is because we want to create great places and spaces for people. We love architecture. That's, that is the the great unifier. And you to get there, you need to run a sort of financially stable business. That's why the motivation is is the architecture ultimately and not the money. But you, you can't get great architecture if you don't have a functioning business. Rose, how what have you learned about a functioning business? And presumably you now know more about running a business. What what's been some tell us a couple of the learning points that you've had in the last year or two. Sure. So I was just going to pick up on James's point actually about communication, but it also is relevant to your question. I mean, obviously, as communications consultants, we're always going to say that communication is key, but I think it really is in the succession kind of process, whether it's an EOT or any other model. And I think what's been really refreshing about Leanne's approach is that it was so transparent and upfront from the get-go so that nothing has felt like a surprise at any point and actually since Damien joined in September it's felt really seamless because we announced his arrival in January he's been in we've been talking about what's going to happen when he joins and now it's just oh yeah he's in the office you know there's no real shock to the system which has been really good and I think even more so when we've been speaking to all of these different practices, when we've put this report together, communication seems to be a common thread all the way through it. And actually that's kind of at odds, I think, with a lot of a lot of ways that architects, I guess, historically have spoken about succession, or it feels like it's the elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about, whether you're the practice leader or the next gen who's looking at their kind of long-term career plan, wondering whether they're ever going to get, you know, the top seat and might end up setting up on their own or going elsewhere if those directors or practice leaders aren't talking to them about their long-term plan and where they might be able to fit into that. So I think communication is the biggest takeaway from all of this, definitely. Absolutely. It's interesting that James referenced the fact that we did have a working group. Um, we, Mm -hmm. We did actually, we started seriously exploring employee ownership in 2012. And we went down a little bit of a, um, you know, a kind of a, a dead end with one particular advisor who seemed to be doing everything that was legal and correct, but felt out ultimately there was very little empathy. And then we had a, a second advisor, but really made me think that he was somebody I wanted to introduce to the practice was the fact that he said, you've got to be terribly careful because if you think things through too much, and it then presented, it comes over as a fait accompli and people won't really want to follow it. If you actually haven't really thought about some of the the fundamental tenets, it comes over as ill-informed. So actually you've got to hit a sweet spot of actually having thought certain things through, but actually to then flesh out what the structure is going to be and to do it in consultation with members of, of the practice. And as James said, we, we did have a, a group um, that met basically to write the Articles of Association for the, the trust. But it did mean that the individuals on the working group were also going back and, and consulting their, their colleagues. So that actually what we ended up with was very much reflecting the wishes of the practice. 
So it, it wasn't just top down. It very much was the practice standing back and looking at how it wanted to go forward. I thought it was a fascinating number of months, but hard work. I'm sure. You've talked a fair amount there between you on timing, communication, getting the right advisors. I'm just wondering if there are other sort of either key points to think about or pitfalls perhaps that you'd flag up to others thinking about a similar route. I think just on the communication side of things and and, and also Denise and James talking about the, the steps they went to in terms of introducing the EOT, I, th- I think uh, the biggest issue, well, it wasn't really an issue, but the concern we had was making sure that people understood this was still a business. So the, the management of the business was still uh, managing the business and the trustees were just like a board of directors that would sit above a management team and they weren't people who are, were basically running the business. And I think, um, so, so if I was to, to warn anyone of anything is that after the announcement, actually nothing much happened in terms of the EOT. It was, you know, it was exciting and the announcement and everything else, but it was business as usual straight after that because our systems were already in place. And I think sometimes people think that their day job is going to change quite dramatically, and it's not. It's a, it's a different way of running the business. But I think the, the evolution of people seeing how powerful it is has, has really come in the last eight months where, uh, first of all, money is, is coming to them and actually they're seeing the succession plan in action and in practice rather than... Uh, and I, I don't blame people for being slightly... Uh, cautious when when people say they're moving on or change is coming of, of course it causes you to be a bit nervous but I think now that everyone sees that it's actually uh, works very very well and we have someone who has joined the team who has the same values as all of us then it works uh, it's been great. I think it's a good point Leanne it's our own transition I, I think there weren't many people Denise you maybe know better than me but there's maybe only a couple of people I remember who who got the wrong impression and thought that when the transition happened, they would be all of a sudden everyone in the practice would be sitting in the boardroom, all eighty odd staff, all making the decisions. And obviously, you can't function in any form of business in that way. You'd be horrendously inefficient, and it's not how anything is structured that's sort of going to function properly. So the, you will still keep going, as you say. That's part of the point about the natural evolution. In a way, it should be a point of pride that there wasn't some huge change from Friday to Monday when you became an EOT it was still in a sense business as usual and that's a sign that the transition has been handled very well. I think it's still there was a there was a learning phase which you know to a certain extent is is still going on because these things are quite dynamic. I think what was fantastic was that actually having for a long time said to people you know you are we want you to be involved in some of the more you know, practical aspects of running the practice, et cetera. Actually, with the employee ownership, people really felt as though they were empowered to get involved. And that was fantastic because you actually end up with members of the staff saying, I think actually we could be doing such and such. We could be setting up a, a research group or we'd be really happy looking at how we could 
perhaps improve certain aspects of the the functioning of of the practice. And I think that has been very, very good indeed. Uh, One of the things that the team that looked at the the articles considered was the appropriate number of, of members of staff as trustees, because we can't have 80 trustees. And so there was quite a lot of time. And in many respects, we have ended up with more trustees than many other trusts. But we thought it was important because they represent groups of people within the practice, whether they are architectural staff or administrative staff, depending on where they are located, because we've got three studios. I think that has made a big um, impact on actually making sure that everybody feels that they can actually just input and then, you know, the trustees serve for a three-year term. We've never gone down um, voting for trustees. So people don't come saying, you know, I have a particular thesis that I, I want to kind of put down and be elected on. It's it's very much a case of wanting to actually uh, improve what we have and actually just to, to be able to look at it objectively uh, and not to overturn it necessarily. That's great. Rose, I'm going to come to you with what I think is going to be our last question because we're running out of time with you guys. So we've talked about how people feel more empowered. And Leanne said that one of her aspirations was that people could see that they could build a career within Ng and see the potential of Ng. And I think James and and Denise have also talked about people being able to see a future in the company. I'm going to put you on the spot now and say... Does it make you, being part of an EOT, does that make you and your colleagues feel more as though you belong and can build your future within a company and see a pathway? And is it useful for for recruitment as well as retention? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think that's putting me on the spot too much at all. (laughs) Yeah, it's 100% makes you feel more empowered and motivated to stay within a business and be part of its evolution 100% I think it's that's also true for people like me who have been identified as the next gen of leaders and kind of being brought into that conversation a bit more but also the more junior members of staff who can see that in the longer term kind of plan or career path and going back to your point Denise about staff getting involved in different parts of the business we do that at Ing we have what we call the Ing pie and everyone is involved in a slice of the pie whether that's HR or marketing or digital and it's a really great way for them to learn and take ownership of something within the business rather than you know just be working on the day-to-day stuff and I think that's really important it's all about learning and giving people a really stimulating engaging experience as much as it is about kind of protecting the long-term success of the business great great answer rose and i think that that probably draws the conversation to an end so we're going to we're going to stop recording but just say thank you very much everybody for joining us thank you thank you conversation thank you